Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About It. Conversations with MRU counselors on managing your mental health, succeeding in school, and everything else you're too scared to ask. I'm your host, Ann Mayo, and in today's episode, I'm sitting down with Miriam Napik to talk a little bit about neurodiversity, what it is, and possible ways to identify it. When Miriam Napik started counseling, she noticed a gap. In this gap, she wanted to make more room for neurodiversity in all of its forms. She understands that brains can function differently, so she listens to the strengths and challenges of each student. Miriam creates a safe space for neurodiverse students to help open their eyes to new attitudes and possibilities. By listening in today, I hope our episode can give you even a fraction of the guidance she offers students on a daily basis. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. Um, I'm like, I think we're both really honored um, and I'm like super passionate about today. But first, uh, I kind of wanted to start it off with sort of in layman terms, just because I feel like not a lot of students really understand what neurodiversity is. Could you explain what it is to our listeners? I'm going to give a good attempt because I don't think it's sort of like, you know, uh, one one quick answer to that. Um, but it's really recognizing that brains work differently along a continuum and that there are particular areas of the brain that might work faster or slower, processing differently. And so uh, thinking about neurodiversity as something where, where we recognize that the, the way that the brain operates, functions, is varied. It's diverse. Counseling here at MRU, you kind of specialize um, in helping neurodiverse students. So what kind of inspired you to focus on neurodiversity for your um, counseling? Well, it started in my training where I felt like, well, I think I'm missing something. You know, like I'd be working with people and I'd go, there's something here that I don't quite understand, and I'd be talking to my supervisors about it, and and then I started to see some students had been diagnosed with ADHD, and then I started to think about other people that I had seen, and that I thought, you know, maybe they were undiagnosed ADHD, and uh, uh, learned that this is quite common in post-secondary, that there are uh, students who come to university who have been managing quite well in their education previous, and but then they kind of come into this post-secondary setting and they begin to see some challenges because of the demands that the setting uh, has for them. So, so then that's when I thought, okay, I need to know more about this and to really understand this. It's actually funny that you mentioned the whole undiagnosed thing because me personally, I was not diagnosed until November of 2021, so I was 23. Um, so I went 23 years of my life without knowing that I had ADHD. Um, and I think it definitely did kick me in the butt once I came into university. I think the, one of the main things that really kept me from figuring out that I had ADHD was the idea of what ADHD was in my brain. Um, because my younger sister was diagnosed at a very young age. But, so I always associated it with a lack of attention span, um, trouble learning things and sort of absorbing things. But after growing up and seeing my, my doctor, I found out it was a lot more than that. It's like hyperfixation, impulse control, or lack thereof, um, so things like that. Do you think that there are a lot of students like that that just they don't consider themselves that they might have ADHD because they see it as like a specific thing, but it's just so many other things? I think you're right, and not just students, also the parents of students. There's sort of, you know, we, we all live in these contexts, right, that where we try to make sense of, of what we see. 
And so there are a lot of ways that people make sense of their experience and the way others make sense of their behavior. It can be confusing. So people can say, parents say, well, you can play video games for hours, so you no, don't have attention problems, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and really thinking that it's poorly named mm -hmm. as an attention deficit, it really is difficulty regulating it. So as you say, you can end up hyper-focusing on something, uh, that it's difficult to switch. So as a university student, you might be working on one essay, and it might be you, know, you work on that for eight hours at the expense of another uh, important assignment because you're moving into this hyper-focused state. And it's difficult to switch, even when you're aware, right? So it's not just, oh, now I know I can do it. I think people, therefore, make a, a lot of uh, problematic assumptions. Um, there's a, a very old book uh, on ADHD that's called, You Mean I'm Not Crazy, uh, Lazy, Crazy, or Stupid? <laughs> and th th people have made these assumptions, right? And often, oh, you just not, it doesn't mean enough. You have, you're not trying hard enough, mm -hmm. sort of character problems, or maybe they have to do with intelligence. Maybe it's, you know, these are not your, the things where you're strong at. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and none of those things explain it. Mm -hmm. Russell Barkley is one of the, quite a famous researcher in the area of ADHD. And, uh, and he says uh, something like, uh, ADHD is not a, a problem of knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. It's a problem of knowing, of doing what you know when you need to do it, right? <laughs> you know what you need to do, but it does become a problem of doing it when you need to do it. How would you notice that it's affected them if they don't know they have it? It's a great question, because I, I think because people experience it so differently and make sense of it quite differently, mm -hmm. it can present um, as anxiety, mm -hmm. because if, if, you, if this is somehow a, a, which, you know, a problem of performance, of doing what you know when you need to do it, then, uh, that creates a lot of anxiety because mm -hmm. now you haven't started the essay when you need to start it, right? And you know you think you're behind. You think, well, I got that thing to do too, and I forgot about that thing, and and so a lot of anxiety is generated because of that, which makes sense, right? You have anxiety long enough, there can depression can set in as well, right? It's kind of exhausting. Your your whole system is sort of on on edge in in alarm mode for a long time. Your sense of self can be impacted, right? Like this this effort without success yeah. <laughs> is so demoralizing, right? Yeah. So, um, so it can kind of present in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then when people start to describe some of their experiences, what it's like to sit in a, a lecture, uh, what kind of spaces they find it uh, easier to learn within. Mm -hmm. And so kind of starting to learn about a person's experience in detail day to day as they put effort into being a student uh, that helps to kind of unpack things and and you start to see patterns that lead to that question. I wonder if there are attention regulation difficulties. For me, um, in my personal experience, uh, a lot of the sort of symptoms that I presented that were later pointed out to me as being symptoms of ADHD was um, I procrastinated quite a bit. Um, I procrastinated assignments a lot and my doctor explained it to me as like, yeah, it's like if you're not interested in something, you're not going to focus on it at all. Like not until it's like it's needed. So the procrastination, there was the lack of impulse control. Um, I had a really bad spending problem. I mean, obviously it's still there, um, but it's not as bad. We're wondering, are there any symptoms that you see that are not common, but that you see um, that may point to a, stu a student being neurodiverse if they don't know they have it? Yeah, and, and so we're, we're talking... Uh, 
in neuro, if we use the term neurodiverse, we're talking about more than ADHD. Mm. I would say that, that any kind of challenge where you say, like, I'm, I'm putting effort into this, but this is still difficult for me, uh, there's something that feeling often people have, something's missing. Like, I, how come other people seem to experience this in this way? Yeah. And, and it's kind of falling flat for me, or I just don't get it. People on the autism spectrum often experience that as, you know, people do small talk and they, they do this stuff that makes no sense, you know? Like, can we just talk about the stuff that we're interested in, which is, what might be something really specific. Mm -hmm. But again, like, it, we're talking diversity. Mm -hmm. So people's experiences and the way they've made sense of it in whatever kind of context they've been living in mm -hmm. really changes things. So that's, you know, I'd, I'd want to leave it as general as that, to just be curious and to say, I wonder what's going on. Because uh, it could be so many things, right? People do have, you know, learning difficulties. There are all kinds of ways that, that there may be some things going on. And that knowing about them helps to accommodate them in some way, mm -hmm. to work, find workarounds. And I'm, I'm all for trying to do something outside of yourself to make things easier, easier rather than demand of yourself to be different. We've kind of talked about how, you know, ADHD is uh, one neurodiverse condition. You also mentioned autism, like the autism spectrum. Could you maybe list a few neurodiverse conditions? So I think about uh, the ways that brains can be different. And so learning disabilities would end up being disabilities in certain contexts, um, ADHD, uh, autism spectrum. But there's also kind of an understanding that sometimes if people have experienced trauma, their brains are also working somewhat differently and can develop differently over time. So for instance, experiencing chronic childhood uh, difficulties uh, can change the development of the brain uh, to make it more sensitive to um, threat, for example. I don't know that everyone would include all of those things mm. within the term neurodiversity, but I, I kind of think about, for myself and my practice, we have to think about people kind of at, at all, of the, all of the levels. So at that mm -hmm. brain-based level, mm -hmm. right, that there can be differences that are really physiological, but it always, their experience is within a context, mm -hmm. right, within a, a larger context that goes like school and family um, and beyond. You know, in all of these contexts, we're trying to make sense of our experience and trying to live uh, well, mm -hmm. whatever that means to, to the person. We saw that one of your, or I guess uh, your preferred method of therapy when it comes to neurodiverse students is narrative therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, we were just sort of hoping that you could maybe explain it a little more in depth. Narrative therapy helps, it kind of looks at the way that people make sense of the world, mm -hmm. is that we have we story our lives and we have many experiences and we string them together mm -hmm. and we can tell stories about them. Um, but we have many experiences uh, that may not be part of the story. Mm -hmm. So we kind of get like a, a dominant story that may we tell about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are lots of different aspects to that. Mm -hmm. There's also a recognition that the stories we tell are impacted by often what are called the discourses the stories that we have in society. What are the resources available to us to make sense of things? Mm -hmm. This could be in your faith community. There might be messages around what is appropriate and what is not appropriate, and how to be a woman or a man, right? How to be a mother. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these, these, I guess, larger resources, mm -hmm. yeah, that we draw on to help make sense of, mm -hmm. of things. 
And so sometimes these ways of making sense of things are really oppressive. And so one of the things that's, that's recognized as part of narrative therapy, it's, it's not just that problems don't just live inside heads and bodies, right? Mm -hmm. We live in connection with the world and we make sense of it, uh, mm -hmm. of our experience within uh, that world. And so some of those stories are oppressive and it helps to understand and kind of unpack them to say, what are those things that have been impinging on, on how you make sense of things? So for instance, with ADHD, as a child, you're growing up and, and parents are, are feel a, a dedication from their way of being good parents. This is how I learned to be a good parent. You, you really want to say, you, know, you want to kind of tough and be persistent. And, and, and I'm going to support you to build that character. And you have a person with ADHD, and it's not a problem of character, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the ways that they might make sense of their experience over time is, well, I think I'm, I'm just lazy. I just really need to work on this. I need to be less lazy. I just need to start things sooner, right? Why, why can't I start? I just need to start things sooner. I have to just, you know, suck it up and do stuff that I'm not interested in. And none of those things, which seem to make perfect sense within the, the story that could be told, is really oppressive in that instance. It's not helpful, right, to help to make sense of things. Um, and so to say, what, what else is, could we bring into uh, this situation in terms of how you make meaning of things that would help you to move forward differently mm -hmm. and help you to make sense of things in a way that supports changes, right? So changes like maybe I organize my stuff differently, maybe I have notes differently, maybe I, but, but there are all kinds of different things that you could do mm -hmm. uh, that, that now somehow uh, make this difficulty that you're facing one of, oh, well, this is in part the context that I'm in. It's because my assignments aren't due for, th for you know, two months that I don't have, I can't generate, my brain doesn't generate enough interest mm -hmm. to get the ball rolling on it, right? And, and now I have anxiety and I'm waiting until my anxiety is to the point where I have to get started. And so you, you start to say, okay, these are patterns because not only about the way my brain's working, but the context that I'm in. And so how can I change the context around me? How can I change some of the ways I do things that make this less of a problem? So we sort of talked about, you know, you've seen a lot of students in university that have un that may have undiagnosed neurodiversity. I'll start off by asking, in the past, have you ever helped students realize that they may be neurodiverse? We've had lots of students come in, and it begins with, well, these are the things I'm experiencing, and it's distressing, I'm, I don't feel like I'm reaching my potential, you know, like I, I just am not living the life I want to live. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it begins with that. And then careful exploration, like really listening and kind of unpacking these things uh, might show some patterns. And then we have some options in terms of where we refer people for assessment. Mm -hmm. So we work very closely with health services. Mm -hmm. um, the docs there are um, very knowledgeable about the kinds of things that students uh, struggle with. And we have a psychiatrist that we can refer to. Um, so we encourage students to go to their doctor to get a referral. And we have all those processes in place, health services does. So then we look for a possible assessment. Mm -hmm. We also, um, there is assessment available uh, sometimes through uh, access and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so that's for um, psychoeducational assessments. Mm -hmm. And so I might begin by talking about what are the ways, like if, if we could accommodate 
some of the things that you've been experiencing, if we could provide information differently, if we could, if we could give you a bit more time on exams, if you could write an exam in a quiet place, all of these things could potentially be helpful. There might be an opportunity to, uh, to do some interim accommodation to help students access uh, supports while more assessment is being done. And then the assessment comes back and sometimes it does, it points to specific things. You know, sometimes they're difficult, like the diagnosis, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's also very affirming of mm -hmm. people's experience and saying, oh, okay, so it's a thing, <laughs> right? It's a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just me, you know, uh, all the things that I've been looking at and being critical of in myself. And then, of course, the only way a diagnosis is helpful is if we have an understanding of what to do next, how to make things better, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that would be the value in it. And so people do have support through access and inclusion. Um, they can meet with an access advisor to discuss what kinds of accommodations might be helpful um, and what kind of resources are available. So when you sort of help these people discover that they may be neurodiverse, do you have any recommendations that you give them to sort of maybe get more control? Like let's say after they have the analysis and they've been diagnosed, like are there any recommendations that you give them to sort of be like, yeah, you can like do these things and it could help you? So what I would begin with is, is finding out where the, the difficulties are, mm -hmm. where are the, are the difficulties experienced? And it's because they're quite, can be quite diverse, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so begin with that and then asking what would be most meaningful if if you could make a change what is a change that would be most meaningful and maybe we begin there maybe it's if you could make a change that you say you know if i could just do like this shift this and it's a smaller step then that's a way to begin so working with the person uh to see what would be uh what seems like the best way to go about this mm -hmm. so it's very collaborative there are some things that i mean there's a book called ADHD friendly ways to organize your life. <laughs> so like there are a lot of knowledge out there, things that people have, have recognized that may be helpful. And so we begin to explore some of those. So if you're all the time looking for your keys, your phone, you know, if, if that's one of the things that you're experiencing or you, you're not, you're looking for your assignment all the time, mm -hmm. become a teaser, I think now that it's digital, <laughs> but when there was paper flying around everywhere, this mm -hmm. would, be, would be very difficult, right? So how can we design the world, your world, in a way that doesn't require your, your attention to be focused all the time on these things? Mm -hmm. um, often people say, I just don't remember where I, I put the phone. Um, however, it's more likely that you never knew where the phone was because when you put it down, your attention was elsewhere. Even understanding that and saying, okay, so how can I set it up? Well, sometimes just a bowl or a box at the front door where you put it and you, you start to build habits, right? So um, people come with organized um, um, backpacks mm -hmm. and they figured out exactly where to put things. It's very sort of a, a, a good system mm -hmm. and they've trained themselves to put it back in the same spot. And so some of these strategies um, of habits and, and repetition, designing the world so that you are more likely to find the thing that you're looking for, these can all make a difference, right? And, and just reduce the effort. Because sometimes you think about, if I just put more effort in it, but it's not a problem of effort, mm -hmm. right? And if it's not a problem of effort, then uh, you look elsewhere. And so that's often where I begin, is to think about, you know, specifically, what are you dealing with? What would be meaningful to change? And then what are some of the strategies uh, that would just make it easier?
So what are some challenges that neurodiverse students face even after they've been diagnosed in university? One of the things that I guess is kind of a process that I think, if you think about it as a kind of an unfolding theme, mm -hmm. um, is around identity. Like how do you incorporate this into who you are? Mm -hmm. For some people it's, a, it's, it's quite upfront, like as part of their identity. For others it's like a small aspect of themselves. And it is kind of this process of incorporating this into who you are, your sense of self, okay. in a way that's non-shaming, non-pathologizing, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Like, how do you incorporate this? Another thing sometimes that, that students uh, deal with is grief, right? There's, there's uh, like, where wasn't I diagnosed earlier? My life would have been so different if I would have known this earlier. Mm -hmm. And so there's some grief and to, to work through as well uh, for students sometimes. And then the other piece is discovering your strengths. It's one of the things that, that I often, I, I, it's, a, it's a favorite conversation <laughs> I like to have, is uh, we figure out all the things that person has already figured out mm -hmm. as workarounds. Like already things that mitigate the problem. And the list can be quite surprising once you kind of think about it that way. And, uh, and so working with from the position of what, what's worked before, <laughs> like what have you already figured out? How can we apply that to other situations that you're now facing? Mm -hmm. So also finding, finding where the strengths are. So just to kind of wrap up the interview, um, because we've gone over a lot of good stuff, you know, really helping students figure out like, you know, you're not alone with this. What kinds of resources are available for these students? Like um, on campus, whether it's sort of created by staff or maybe it's with students, like um, resources that are available to just like any neurodiverse, like are there different resources for different conditions? One of the things that comes to mind are things that students can get involved in. Sometimes it's kind of like find your people, mm -hmm. right? And uh, one of the things, uh, it's not running this semester, but I'm hoping that next uh, September it starts up again, is a, a group for students on the autism spectrum. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I most commonly have heard when, when, these, when we run these groups is, it's so nice to spend an hour being in a room with people who get it. And I don't have to feel like I have to pass, right? Like I have to pretend, right, that I'm, that I'm not neurodiverse. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, that's lovely. I hope to work with the Seneve Foundation. So this is a, a foundation that's off campus. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping to work with them to see how we, the programs that they run, how we might connect with people who come out of their programs to MRU to make that transition smoother. Mm -hmm. um, so there are off-campus resources too that I would refer people to and make them aware of. Finding your people can also go through, through clubs. So that would be another thing to be find, find connections in that way. There are lots of different clubs and people have started clubs. So uh, Neurodiversity uh, Club uh, through the Students Association. Mm -hmm. So that's an, that would be another option. Um, getting involved in things like we have a mental health peer group and a, a health peer, peer support group. Um, around health issues. Mm -hmm. um, so you could become part of that to highlight themes that are important uh, around neurodiversity. Of course, um, counseling services, um, very importantly, access and inclusion. You do have to have uh, a diagnosis, so uh, documentation, but you can work with people then there who have absolutely expertise. I wouldn't want to say, here's your advice, just try and pass, mm -hmm. just you know, ad ad adjust yourself to mm -hmm. the system, to what everybody else does. 
because there's also a piece about community intervention. We can do better as a community to recognize neurodiversity as something that is not shaming or uh, odd, right? that we have a responsibility as a community to also make room for neurodiversity, mm-hmm. right? So that people feel less like they need to pass and, and hide what it is that the, the way that their brains work. One of my advice is, I guess, to more to the community. It's, it's, not, it's not about, you know, be more like what most of us are, mm-hmm. uh, but about how do we welcome all the different ways that people are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so as a person who's neurodiverse is to, yeah, find your people that's great. And also get the support to be who you are. That was, that was incredible. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I feel wonderful listening to all of this. Um, but yes, again, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. That's Miriam Napick, one of the many counselors at MRU's Wellness Services. Thanks again for listening to Let's Talk About It. I'm Ann Mayo, and this episode was produced by Abby Parker. This series is powered by Shaw and a part of the Community Podcast Initiative based out of MRU. It was produced on Treaty 7 territory, where we are grateful for the opportunity to create, learn, and grow. Since mental health is a universal issue, we hope all voices can enjoy the land with continued respect and appreciation for the people who call it home. Special thanks to our partner, MRU Counseling Services, and of course, to Miriam Napik for joining me. You can learn more about MRU Counseling and book a free appointment at mru.ca slash counseling. That's counseling with two L's. You can also follow at MRULiveWell on Instagram for more resources and wellness events on campus. Be sure to subscribe to find the rest of the series. And don't forget, if you're struggling, reach out and don't be afraid to talk about it. <laughs>